Just a heads up for our listeners, this episode deals with themes of violence and human trafficking. She was 18 years old when my grandfather gave her to my mother as a gift. And when my family moved to the United States, we brought her with us. No other word but slave encompassed the life she lived. This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. The Atlantic published a personal essay that hit a nerve. Mm. Here in the U.S., the Philippines, all over the world, really. And you're listening to it now. It's called My Family's Slave. Her days began before everyone else woke and ended after we went to bed. She prepared three meals a day, cleaned the house, waited on my parents, and took care of my four siblings and me. My parents never paid her, and they scolded her constantly. She wasn't kept in leg irons, but she might as well have been. The essay was written by Alex Tizan, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He passed away unexpectedly this March, and right now you're listening to someone else reading his words. The essay is about his relationship to this woman he called Lola, the Tagalog word for grandmother. But they weren't related. Admitting the truth would have meant exposing us all. We spent our first decade in the country learning the ways of the new land and trying to fit in. Having a slave did not fit. The Tagalog word for Yudosha status is katulong. The loose translation in English is domestic helper, but that doesn't really say it all. When Tizan's family moved to the U.S. in the 1960s, they brought Yudosha with them. She lived in their house. She rarely ventured outside. She had no friends. She couldn't read. But she was essential to his family of aspiring immigrants. But over time, Tizan became more aware of Yudosha's real relationship to his family. Having a slave gave me grave doubts about what kind of people we were, what kind of place we came from, whether we deserved to be accepted. I was ashamed of it all, including my complicity. Didn't I eat the food she cooked and wear the clothes she washed and ironed and hung in the closet? But losing her would have been devastating. Some people who reacted to this essay said that Tizan and his siblings didn't go far enough to make things right for Yudosha as they got older and came to understand how she had been treated by his family. Shireen, this was a hard story and a really complicated story. And we're going to wade into the complexity on this episode. We'll speak with a human trafficking survivor from the Philippines. We look at the history of this practice. But first, we're going to start with Lola's story and speak to someone who knew her. And you're going to hear Lola referred to in different ways in this episode. Eudosha, Miss Polito, just what to call her is part of this story itself. My name is Melissa Tizon, and my um, husband, Alex Tizon, is the late writer who um, authored the article that's the cover of The Atlantic this month. Melissa met Eudosha toward the end of her life, after she'd been working for Tizon's family for nearly half a century. She sat down to talk to us a few days after her husband's article was published in The Atlantic. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Do you remember seeing or meeting Yudosha for the first time? I don't remember the exact first time, but it was in 1996. I met my husband in 1994. And so a couple years after that, we um, went to his mom's home in Salem, Oregon. And that's where Lola lived. And I know that Alex was so excited to see her and his mom as well but especially Lola. She just has just such a warm, grandmotherly personality. I remember that about her. Did Alex explain Lola's relationship to the family, to you? How did he sort of explain who she was? Well, he explained to me that she was a great aunt, you know, a relative of his mom's, 
And I know that I'm Filipino as well. So it's not uncommon in Filipino families for relatives to live together and to help one another. So it didn't strike me as anything unusual. And, you know, the more that I got to know Alex and his family, I did come to learn that she was, you know, what would be considered a domestic helper, somebody who clearly was there to serve his mom. But she also was kind of a maternal figure for everyone in the family. There was his real mom, but she was also a very strong matriarchal presence. Did you and Alex ever have conversations where he was like, I'm really struggling with this role that Lola played in my life and knowing that she was a domestic helper, as you called her. Did he ever express to you feeling uncomfortable with that relationship? Yes. He did talk about that. He and I have been married for 19 years. And actually, for most all of this time, he or none of his brothers and sisters really ever use the term slave to refer to her. It's only been in the last year when Alex started deeply writing this story and doing his own deep discovery that he began to introduce that word. But everybody recognized that she was treated very unfairly and very poorly. Um, And when he and his brothers and sisters got old enough and in a position to help, they all tried to talk to her about helping her get into a different situation, helping her get out of where she was, you know, like coming to live with one of them, or they would help her go back to the Philippines to be with her family. But she didn't want to leave. And, you know, and so I don't, I mean, I can't speculate on what the um, psychology is behind that, but she was very devoted to that, to that relationship with Alex's mom. When she moved in with you, did she go places with you guys? Yeah. So, so it wasn't until Alex's mom passed away in 1999, where Lola finally felt free to actually do what she wanted to do. And at the time, she chose to move in with Alex and I, where uh, we lived in the Seattle area at the time. At that time, she was already in her 70s. You know, knowing how horrible her life had been and how hard it had been and what she had endured, we wanted her to come live with us and just relax, rest, enjoy. We wanted her to be around her grandkids. I mean, we consider them her grandkids my stepdaughter Dylan and our daughter together, Maya, and they loved being with Lola and she loved being with them. So it was just really nice to see, you know, finally in her 70s where she could just really enjoy being like a real grandma, a real part of the family without having, um, without feeling guilty about it and without feeling like she had to do all the work in the house. We did take her everywhere with us on every every vacation and we also brought her to the Philippines a few times because we wanted to make sure that she had a chance to go back home see her relatives and then also we wanted to explore the idea if she wanted to move back to the Philippines and every time she would say no I'm ready to come home did Alex tell you that because he needed to make this right somehow, and this was a way to do it by, like, making it public. 
He didn't talk about it specifically in those words. Lola was just such an important figure in his life. So I think it was a demon that he wrestled with his entire life. I know your question is about why did he want to write write about it. So I think it was just I would think it was the personal exploration to understand. But I think he also really wanted to honor her life, to tell her story. Yeah, you said that you never referred to her as a slave, used the term slave when you were talking about her, yet it comes up in his this piece over and over again. In his exploration, I think he realized that what she was was a slave. So he started using that term. So if he was really going to be truthful about everything, then I then he had to use the word. You and your husband started paying Eudosha $200 a week once you moved in with you guys. Can you share a little bit about how you arrived at that decision um, and how she reacted to it? Yeah, well, so first of all, when, when we invited her to come live with us, we weren't asking her or forcing her to do any work. We really wanted her to come live with us just to rest, relax, enjoy I mean, because she was already in her 70s. It, this, wasn't, this wasn't, we weren't bringing her here for, to our home for a job. But we also wanted to make sure that she had money. So we did give her money every week. And then she also, she also did work um, when she was living, when she was living with uh, Alex's mom. You know, as she got older, towards the end of Alex's mom's life, she worked in a, in a cannery or something. So she had collected Social Security benefits. So she had money from that and then, you know, the money that we gave her. And I think she sent a lot of it home to the Philippines. Do you know much about what her legal status was towards the end of her life? She was undocumented for a time and then the brothers and sisters helped her get citizenship, and it was the proudest day. It wasn't just Alex who had opened himself up to backlash, but you and your family. How do you feel? I've personally received a lot of hate on Twitter and social media, but all of it, the whole range of emotions is legitimate. And people should be pissed about the way that Lola was treated by Alex's parents. That should make them angry. And I try to keep our two kids focused on the positive, but also just understanding that their dad would have wanted this debate. He would have wanted to be part of it. And the sad thing is that he's not. What is the conversation you're having with them about Lola and what happened to Lola? That's a really good question. We talked for two hours, I think, the night that the story came out. Mostly we were talking about the incredible times that we had with her because it's easy to reminisce when your husband has just passed away and you just want to think about the good times. But those 12 years when we, when we um, lived with Lola and Alex was still with us were just so fun and just the happiest times of our, times of our life. So, so that's a, a lot of what we talked about. Um, but but like me, didn't know the extent to the way Lola was treated until we read the drafts of Alex's article. So that was news to us, and we were just as shocked as everybody. Um, and I think it just made us miss Lola so much more. And 
and just made us wish that we could have just done more, spent more time with her, done more things, you know, just, it just made, made us miss everything about her. I just want to thank you so much for talking about this. Yeah. Thank you for letting me talk about it. I, I'm not trying to exploit this or anything, but I just, since Alex isn't here, I just want to make sure some portion of his voice is represented. And, you know, for his brothers and sisters, this has been hard for them their whole lives. They just want people to know that they tried everything to try to help Lola when they were old enough. They wanted nothing more than that to help her. They loved her so much. And um, her relationship with Alex's mom just prevented that from happening. That's the way Melissa Tizon saw it. Unfortunately, the two people we all want to talk to the most, Eudosha Polito and Melissa's husband, Alex, are no longer with us. If we could, we would ask Alex Tizon when he first came to believe Eudosha was a slave. But we would want to ask Eudosha about the relative freedom of her later years and about whether she felt she had lived her life as a slave. After the break, the long history of Katulongs who lived and live like Eudosha. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Delta Airlines, who wants to make your travel experience informed, connected, and seamless. With the Fly Delta app, you'll always be able to locate your bags. The app has real-time bag tracking with RFID, giving you peace of mind in your hand. Download the Fly Delta app now. Michael Garofalo here from the StoryCorps podcast. In our latest episode, Life After Jail. Hear from people who have served their sentence but still feel like they're doing time. I have a son now, and I'm scared. Every single day, he's going to grow up to be embarrassed of me. Find the StoryCorps podcast on NPR One and wherever you get podcasts. All right, we're back. Shireen, let's just get into how we decided to talk about this story for a minute. Mm-hmm. So a producer here at NPR was very emotional recounting this phone conversation she had with her mother at 3 a.m. after she read this story. That producer is half Filipino. Yeah, and she wanted to know whether her family paid the woman who lived with them during her childhood. Mm-hmm. Another producer overheard that conversation and started talking about the Katulong that lived with her family. Mm-hmm. They wanted to talk about this, but, you know, they were worried about airing their family's dirty laundry and making Filipinos look bad. And, you know, some of our colleagues who were not Filipino, but whose families had similar arrangements with people like this, told us their own stories. Yeah, the story struck a chord with a lot of people. Children of immigrants from Latin America, mm-hmm. Asia, Africa, the Middle East. This is something a lot of people have been struggling with, ourselves included. Like, are, are these people slaves, you know? Right. Um, so for more context, we went to someone who studies this. Vicente Rafael is a professor of history and Southeast Asian studies at the University of Washington in Seattle. So would you call what happened to Miss Pulido, the woman that uh, we're calling Lola, would you call her an indentured servant or would you call her a slave? That's a hard call to make as a legally sanctioned institution. Slavery was gone, but there's no question about it that she was subjected to slave-like conditions, right? And whether or not she's a slave, the point is that she was enslaved, and I think that's the important point. Mm. She was unfree. She was bound over to her working conditions without any choice. Uh, She was uh, systematically abused and exploited, If you think of slavery as a condition of unfreedom, then she was certainly a slave in that sense. Can you just outline this history? Can you just talk talk about, like, how entrenched this is 
in Filipino culture? Yeah, one of the reasons why it, it erupted in so much controversy was precisely around the slipperiness of the meaning of slave and the fact that it arises within a household made up of working-class immigrants of color rather than, say, a white-black situation. When you know people hear the word slave in the United States, uh, of course they would like put an American frame on it. But the thing is that um, the word slave fits into many different frames. There's certainly a, an American frame, mm-hmm. but there's also a Philippine frame that, especially in the case of his parents, and, and, and this is certainly not to excuse it, first and foremost. I just, I just want to put it out sure. there. I'm not defending slavery. I think it's an indefensible institution and certainly indefensible practice. I'm just trying to understand it. And so one of the ways to understand it is to uh, figure out the different ways in which it was framed by people involved. And I think for Alex's parents, they probably came to the United States thinking rather than bringing a slave, they were actually bringing a servant. Mm -hmm. And the the treatment of her as a servant was not that different from the treatment, uh, to, to be sure, awful, extreme. Not all servants treated this way in the Philippines, but it's you hear about servants being... Uh, abused and, and, and exploited the way she was in the Philippines, but they would not necessarily be called a slave, simply because the question of being a slave is always related to the question of being chattel. It's a question of being property. And while she did have uh, aspects of being a property, remember she was given as if she was a And piece then of inherited. And inherited as if she was a property, right? Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, it was a system of exchange that wasn't out in the open. Uh, it wasn't as if she got picked up in the auction block, uh, that there was actually a price established. In other words, it was a different system of exchange that allowed her to circulate from owner to owner, as it were. So th- there are lots of different frames for it, and, and these frames overlap, and they tend to blur into each other. So it's very difficult to draw a, a quick and easy distinction between uh, someone who is a servant versus someone who is a slave. I think they tend to slide into each other in this context. Well, speaking of that sliding into each other, is it just about money changing hands? You know, if Lola or Miss Bulido, if she was given a paycheck, however meager, and everything was the same about the situation, would we even be talking about it? Would we be so up in arms about this? I think what what you get are gradations of consent and coercion, right? To what extent did they consent to their condition, even if they were sort of subjected to the most horrific kinds of abuses? I'm, I'm curious about the mechanics and the physics of, of, of slavery in the Philippines yeah. uh, or these yeah. arrangements in the uh, Philippines. Right. Like, are, are, they pro, are, are Katulongs, are they seen as a pariah class in this way? Or are they, like, yeah. are, is, it, is, is there a social stigma that is attached yeah. to that? You know, in, it, it's not just in the Philippines, but in lots and lots of non-Western contexts. And, and I, you, know, you think of India and you think of the caste system uh, mm-hmm. and you think of all these sort of uh, informal arrangements. And in the Philippines, certainly there's a long history of that. Pre-colonial society, the society that, that, that was there before the Spaniards colonized the Philippines in 1565, uh, was a slave society. I mean, it was a society that was built on the labor of slaves. But that slavery existed not so much as a contractual, legal relationship whereby the master owned the slave, the slave is kind of property the master owned simply because there was no capitalist system of private property. Instead, what you had was a system uh, that was, I guess, halfway between vassalage and debt bondage. The slave was essentially someone who was indebted to the master. And this idea of indebtedness as the basis of uh, servitude or enslavement uh, was what you might call normative in pre-colonial society. So as a result, 
the kind of slave you were, there were many different kinds of slaves, and the kind of slave you were was largely determined by the kind of debt that you owed. Hmm. Uh, but a, you could, yeah. but you could pay off that debt. Exactly, exactly. And okay. again, this this is a very common practice in ancient, like pre-modern forms of slavery in many different parts of the world, which is that there were many different avenues for manumission, and that uh, it, it, there were no, there, for example, there there were no, uh, at least in the Philippines, uh, there there were no barriers to intermarriage with free people. Uh, you could easily intermarry, hmm. and and your progeny uh, by the second or third generation would be free. Uh, slaves mm-hmm. themselves could own slaves, and there were mm-hmm. all kinds of terms to denote slaves of slaves, and the slaves of slaves themselves could own slaves, and so on down the wow. <laughs> down the bottom, wow. right. right? And and that makes sense only if you think about slavery not as a system of ownership in the modern sense, but in the pre-modern context, slavery as relations of inequality predicated on indebtedness. But what that meant was there was more room to maneuver because your designation was not your fate. There was more room to maneuver up and down the social hierarchy, and there were more opportunities to do so. So how did that change after colonization? Uh, Spaniards abolished slavery because they were abolishing it all over other colonies. They were concerned with converting Native peoples into Christianity. And within the context of Catholicism, everybody who converted to God was a slave of God. So there's this notion of universal <laughs> enslavement to God, right? And so, so there wasn't a that's right. become a slave of a that's slave. That's right. That's right. That's right. So no man had the right to enslave another man because only right. God can do that. But mm-hmm. in, in place of institutions of slavery, they imposed uh, forced labor. And forced labor, of course, became slavery by other means. I think it's important to sort of make distinctions between slavery as an institution versus practices of enslavement uh, Mm -hmm. that are based on coercion of labor. So slavery as an institution versus the practice of enslavement. Right. And, and one thing I'd like to add to is that the institution of slavery does something to the individual. The individual becomes a commodity through and through. Right. So there's a process of commodification. And, and, and again, there's like all kinds of really, really brilliant scholarship around how this process is done from the point of capture to the point of transport to the point of wholesale and retail marketing of slaves and slave markets. Like there's all kinds of stuff that happens there. Whereas practices of enslavement may commodify the person, but that that process of commodic commodification may not be permanent. And so, again, to go back to Alex Tison's article, if you concentrate on what Alex says about the servant slave, and what she does, it's kind of a remarkable development as you read the article. You know, she goes from being this terrorized, victimized person to becoming the sort of constant in their life. She becomes like a person who gives comfort to her that's mother. Right, that's right. And of course, th- of course, this happens too with, with, with slaves. Slaves become mm-hmm. important not only for their physical labor, but for their emotional labor, right? So mm-hmm. in that sense, it's not, it's not that, that different. The point is that if you concentrate less on him and more on her, you begin to see how she develops into this very complex figure, and she comes into her own. I, I was just thinking, you know, knowing what you know about um, this history of the practice of enslavement in the Philippines and, and how it goes back so far, and it's very complicated and layered and very different than what we had here in the United States of America. What do you make of the the really vitriolic reaction to Alex Tizon yeah. and, and the piece. That's that's a great topic all in itself. You know, I mean, I think a lot of it is displaced anger. People see the word slavery. They think of racism. They think of injustice. They think of 
all of the stuff that's been going on, all the unresolved issues. And so I can appreciate and certainly understand the way in which he's been vilified as somebody who's insufficiently repentant, who's narcissistic, self-indulgent, and so on and so forth. Somebody else said, well, he should have given her back pay. It's as simple as that. Just give her the money. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that would be sufficient. Right. The the anger has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of people want to simply find justice in this, and they read about injustice. They're incensed and they have no time. They have no patience. They want justice quick and swift because it's something that in their everyday life they tend to see very little of. So it's very understandable that in this case, a lot of that anxiety, a lot of that anger gets displaced. But the flip side of that is that the call for these kinds of, if you will, retribution, the kind of moral outrage that's directed at the author and at, and at the family. I mean, it's just all this, all this anger directed at the family. Um, really does very little to change the conditions that produce these kinds of enslavement. All they do, at least in my opinion, is provide the person who's doing the condemning a position from which to exercise a kind of moral superiority and in in a very strange way to disavow his or her own complicity with whatever is going on. I mean, I don't think anybody has the answer at the moment, you know, in terms of like, well, what do we do? But I think it's great that people are at least discussing it. That's the, uh, the great thing about the article is that it has given a lot of room for uh, discussion and debate. Can you just say your full name for, for us? Uh, Lydia, L-Y-D-I-A. Uh, Katina, C-A-T-I-N-A. Amaya, Lydia Katina Amaya. You can call me Lydia. Lydia was a cut too long in the Philippines before she came to the United States. She says not long after she arrived, a Korean family enslaved her for three years in their New Jersey home. She says it was the absolute lowest point in her life. And she says she cannot even imagine what Eudocia Tomas Polido had to endure over those five decades. 56 years, that's really long. It's a human violation. It's really sad. Lydia calls what happened to her and what happened to Eudocia modern-day slavery. And now she works for a labor organization in New York called Damayan, which advocates for Filipino domestic workers. I just representing the rest of the my my sisters who have been suffered for like it might be like a um, different situation, but I look at it the same situation. Lydia's situation is not the same as Eudocia's. She was living and working as a domestic helper in the Philippines when she was recruited by a huge international church and persuaded to move to New York to do missionary work. She saw it as a way to make a better life and send money back home to the Philippines. She had a five-year religious visa. As soon as I came here, they took my passport and other documents. Lydia says she slept on the floor with a handful of other missionaries in a room in Midtown Manhattan. They had fundraising quotas and spent long days walking the streets of New York selling flowers. She says winter was the worst. Yeah, walking on the on the snow with like no proper shoes and jacket. So Lydia says she was excited when someone from the church told her she had the opportunity to become the personal secretary to a leader in the organization. She thought it was an honor. But being a personal secretary did not look anything like what Lydia imagined. She says she ended up as a live-in domestic worker for a church member's family, taking care of three young sons. Cook food, clean their clothes, play with them, read the book, take take them outside for the, like, 
a playground. That's all my I, my life was. Like I can I don't have my days off. Seven days a week, twenty four hours a day. Lydia says she slept in a bunk bed in one of the kids' rooms. She says she wasn't taken to the doctor, never got a haircut. She could only leave the house with permission, which rarely happened. She says they even limited how much food she could eat. And they didn't pay me. Because I was told that's my uh, that's the extension of my missionary work. Even I asked them like, I need the money to send for my family. I was told like, how can you support your family? Uh, you need to like, uh, I have to help my fa- myself first to get a good job, and then I can support my family. But then how can I get a job? I was working for them for free. So they use my belief against me. I always trusted them because they're, they're working. They are like religious people. I won't, I can't believe that it, this happened to me in America. She says she endured this treatment for three years and tried to leave twice. The first time she begged the family to let her help the church fundraise on Valentine's Day in Manhattan, but she didn't come back. Eventually, though, the New Jersey family found her and they yelled at her for what they called turning her back on her missionary work. Oh, my gosh. So the parents came, and then all the leaders were really, I was, they treated me like a criminal. The second time Lydia had an opportunity to leave was when her visa ran out. She had to go back to the Philippines. So she says the family bought her a one-way ticket home. Just a ticket. No money, no cell phone, no way to connect with her family. The day she was supposed to leave, their driver took her into the city, and she convinced him to drop her off in midtown Manhattan so that a friend could take her the rest of the way to the airport. She says she hid in a bathroom at the one place she knew, the place where she slept on the floor when she first came to New York. Then she hid in the homes of church friends who took pity on her situation. Someone ended up buying her a bus ticket to Chicago where missionaries gave her a place to stay. She says the entire time she was in hiding, the family hunted her, going all the way to the Philippines to try and find her until they finally gave up. And that's when she started slowly putting her life back together. This is my story, but other uh, Damayan uh, survivors, trafficking survivors, they were like trafficked by the diplomat. They were promised to be paid by like 1500 a month, but they just paid for 500 a month for long hours. They worked like all around, taking care of four children, cooking, cleaning. Oh my gosh, they don't look at us as a human being. Lydia says that once the kids in the Tizan family were old enough to understand that their Lola was a modern-day slave, it was their responsibility to do something. I do believe that. Like, if they believe in, like, uh, like a human rights, and they really care on that human being, they should do something. Lydia's 46 now, and she lives with her husband in Queens. She calls New York her home, but she's back in touch with her family in the Philippines. That's our show. Follow us on Twitter. We're NPR Code Switch. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. Sammy Yenigan, Walter Ray Watson, and Maria Paz Gutierrez produced this episode. We had original music by Ramteen Arablui. A shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, Karen Grigsby-Bates, and Kat Chow. And very, very special thanks to our NPR colleagues, Mallory Yu and Denise Guetta, for their help on this episode. Thanks to The Atlantic and Autumn for the audio of Alex Tizan's essay. And a very big welcome to our new intern, Alili Maeve Walter. Our editor is Juleka Lantigua-Williams. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shereen Marisol Maraji. Be easy. Peace. 
Thanks for listening to Code Switch. One last thing. Have you heard Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR? It's clear and concise. It's a quick update on the news you need to start the day. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning by 6 a.m. Eastern time on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts.